presentation, I will be leading a Q&A with Mary, so please drop any of your questions in the Q&A box, which you can find at the bottom of your screen. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our speaker tonight. Mary Chaltas Adamanali is the Special Programs and Events Manager at Francis Tavern Museum. Mary is tasked with researching and developing special programs like Tavern Week for the museum throughout the year. Her research focuses on interpreting and writing about the lives of historically underrepresented people of the 18th century. And she's currently working towards her master's degree in archives and public history at NYU. Welcome, Mary. Hi, Lisa. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. Quite a good humble brag for that intro, so thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to share my screen really quickly. And we will get started in just a second. Okay. Um, I was told that I was too quiet. Can I get a heads up from my team that I'm doing okay right now? Is this a little better? Still too quiet, Mary. Still too quiet. Oh, no. Okay. Um, if I take out my earbuds, is that better for everybody to hear? Excellent. Excellent. So much better. My buds let me down, you guys. I apologize, but I'm glad that we caught that at the beginning of the lecture. So uh, hello, everybody, again, and welcome. And thank you for joining me this evening to talk about one of my favorite people of the Revolutionary War, Samuel Francis. In this lecture, I'm going to share the last few months of the research that I've been doing about him from his time in New York City in Philadelphia, his life during the Revolutionary War, and his relationship with George Washington. I've been part of the Francis Tavern team for the last few years, and I went into this research to try to answer a lot of our most frequented questions. Um, we get a lot by visitors, obviously. Uh, he's a very mysterious person. He led a very interesting life, and he was always surrounded by founding fathers, and he was really in the thick of it in New York City, so it makes sense that people have a lot of questions. Before we begin, I want to just acknowledge that there's still so much unknown about George Washington. Um, this research is continually ongoing. He was a man who spent time with our founding fathers, like I said. He had rebel groups in his tavern at any given time in the 1760s and 1770s, um, both in New York City and in Philadelphia, so we want to talk about that. But he left behind no written documents, there's no memoir, there's no diaries or anything else like that. So <laughs> we're working with what we got, guys. Uh, so I hope that you enjoy, and I hope that you have any questions, please leave them in the Q&A box for us so we can answer them to the best of my ability, I will say, to the best of my ability. So the first question is, who is Samuel Francis? This is a hard question to answer for me. Um, so researching Francis is a challenge for a few reasons. He lacks any information about his early years. So we don't have a birth certificate from him. We don't know where he was born. We don't know anything about his family. There's no correspondences to even reference any of these things. Sometimes it's noted that he arrived in New York City from the West Indies in the 1720s. There is not enough information for me to be able to confirm that, although that is the most likely source. Um, it makes sense for him to travel between two very diverse British colonies at the same time. Um, his last name is likely of some sort of French origin, but he doesn't have a French accent. He never notes about his French family. Um, he's 
changes the spelling of his name several times. You will see through the advertisements as we go through this lecture. For the most part of his life, he does follow the Francis spelling. And then sometime in the 1780s, him and his entire family decide that they're going to change it to Frances. Uh, so researching that when I have to look up about five different spellings is very, very frustrating and it takes a very, very long amount of time. So we don't know what he looks like. So there's, there's two separate men on this screen. None of them are Samuel Francis. The portrait on the left was believed to have been Francis from the early 20th century until about a few years ago. In 2017, German historian Arthur Kuhl was researching the Prussian court of Frederick the Great and the French painter Antoine Pesny. And he looked through our digital collections and he said, I know that man, that can't be Samuel Francis. Uh, so the full body portrait that you see there in the center is the painting Cavalier, which hangs in a historical society in Dresden. It's the same person. The interesting part is that the Cavalier is also unknown. We also don't know who that man is. So we have two strange men, unknown, still don't know anything about them. And then the third man who's on the right is an engraving of Samuel Francis attributed to Don Trumbull. And again, this is one of those instances where Samuel Francis has a lot of folklore and mystery surrounding him. It just pops up. It just starts appearing in books and we don't know where it came from. So that is another um, pillar in my research, a piece about art, a piece about who he was, a piece about where he came from. All of these things very slowly come together. Research is very time consuming. And with Francis, it's every time you answer one question, there's always a new one. So let's talk about what we do know about Samuel Francis, because there is quite a bit. Uh, his paper trail begins with possibly the earliest known documentation sometime around 1754. I was able to find this front page from the New York Mercury. It's a paper requesting people to come pick up their mail at the post office. This is the earliest Samuel Francis. See, the spelling again will, will change. That was the earliest one I can find. Now, there were a few Samuel Francis's in New York City at the time, so I'm taking like artistic licensing with maybe thinking that this might be him. But we do know that he was in New York City by 1755. On the right side of your screen, you can see he registers himself as a free man and designates himself as an inn owner. So the image on the right is a copy of the roll call of the free man in New York City. Uh, registering yourself as a free man was required by those who were not born in New York City and did not serve a regular seven-year apprenticeship. So that already gives you a context that he definitely was not from New York City and that he did come from someplace else. Uh, the registration as a free man was basically kind of how we think of like a passport or an ID or a visa would work today. It just gave you the rights to be a New York citizen. So like I, he could go vote he could own a property, he could own a business and stuff like that. It does extend that to, he's not some random guy trying to open up a bunch of businesses, but he has the ability to vote for himself. In October of, uh, excuse me, so let's see, a year later, so in 1756, he opens up his first business. He's one of 218 tavern licenses that is given out in the city. And the year before that, he marries his first wife, Mary Carlisle. Um, she dies at some point over the next two years because on November 30th, 1757, uh, Trinity Church records indicate that he marries his second wife, Elizabeth Daly, and the two will go on to have several uh, seven children together. So in 1758, Francis partners with a man named James Taggart, and they go into, which I think is my favorite phrase, retailers of strong liquor, which basically means they truly become tavern keepers. It's another 
uh, bar. It's a very famous one. It's located on the west side of Broadway, so it's not too far off from where Francis Tavern is located today. So although they are partners, Francis takes on a very chef-like responsibility in the business. This is just going to be one of the many advertisements that I show you that highlight his great culinary skills. He loved to cook and he loved to tell people that he cooked. Uh, the advertisement on your right reads large assortments of sweet meats, pickles, ketchups, and bottled gooseberries. Very reasonable. Uh, the ad on the left is one of my favorites that I've been able to find for him. It reads that somebody stole somebody's buckles, and if they don't bring it back to the Mason's Arms at Sam Francis's place, that they are going to be prosecuted to the utmost rigor of the law. Uh, it shows just how much tavern keepers were a central part of 18th century life. Um, they were trusted members of society. They were supposed to be the most respected people. So Sam's place becomes this like lost and found mixture of like, police office, lost and found, place to get a drink, place to call it even, place to fight. Um, it's just very interesting. And there's not many spaces like that today. So it's very important to remember when you think of a tavern, this is your catch-all for every single day life. Oh, sorry. I forgot to mention that the two dissolved their partnership sometime in 1756. It looks around June, July, sometime around the summer. Francis went on to open up a few other establishments that we will talk about. Um, it's interesting to note that the Mason's Arms Tavern becomes Hampton Hall, which is one of the main secret headquarters for the Sons of Liberty. Uh, as a historian, I look at that and I think the patrons who were probably at the Mason's Arms Tavern were also the ones who were going to Hampton Hall, who might have been members of the Sons of Liberty. So it's easy to make that connection to say that Francis was probably around these people knew who these men were and probably agreed with them if he was like, you can come to this tavern. We're all friends here. Francis is most famous for this bar. This is 54 Pearl. This is, this is where we know him the most from. So on January 15th, 1762, Francis purchases 54 Pearl for 2000 pounds from the Delancey Robinson Company for about, uh, for 2000 pounds. I was doing my best to do the conversions and it's around $75,000 today, which is quite a bit amount of money. Um, the building is situated in a great location. Even today, you have the Great Dock Street down the block. It's adjacent to Coenti Street, which is the city's waterfront district. Right outside was one of the biggest marketplaces in New York City. He truly was in one of the busiest parts of one of the busiest cities. It's so, I mean, great place to have a tavern. And the building itself was quite large. So on top of housing his family, which was seven people total, plus some indentured servants, uh, the accommodations fit around 70 people. Uh, if you've ever been to the restaurant downstairs, you know just how large that space is. So it does make quite amount of sense. Taverns, again, were such an essential part of New York City and 18th century life. It's where you went for food, for drink. These were where uh, official government business meetings were held, meetings, lodgings, all those things were happening there. They were trusted members of the community. So when people trusted Sam, they went to his establishments and they went to get his food and they went to just hang out and be in that space. Again, you can see in the advertisement he is highlighting all of the things that he makes, which is quite a lot. So if you think about how you had to pay for advertisements, the fact that he went through with putting all of these, like I, it's a little bit of everything. It's your entire meal. I mean, 
he lists almost everything. Um, he was a very competitive tavern keeper. He extends his ordinary service to the entire day instead of the traditional 1 to 4 p.m. He's basically saying, you can come here whenever you want. I will feed you. Um, and he offers a takeout service. So this is normally when I start making my terrible joke about inventing seamless because we kind of did, but that's another issue for another day. Uh, and his cooking style was English. So if you look at this, you can see a lot of his meals are based on meat. So you have steaks, you have mutton chops, you have veal chops, things like that. There's soup, there's fresh catch, oysters, any kind of way you can think that we're prepared because we're on Pearl Street. So they were right there. Uh, he doesn't skimp on the desserts, jellies, syllabubs, creams, custards. There's even a note in one of his advertisements that if you give him enough time, he will make you a wedding cake, which I think is very, very impressive. Um, the advertisement on the right is another interesting one that I found. We'll talk a little bit about Vauxhall Gardens next, but you can see uh, he's trying to move the wax figures out of Vauxhall Gardens. So think of Madame Tussauds. You have whole, like full lifelike wax figures, and he's trying to move them because he's in the process of selling Vauxhall Gardens. And I'm thinking this is the most New York City scene I've ever like could think of that he's him and his team are moving wax figures out and down Broadway. And I said, if that had happened today, nobody would have batted an eyelash. It would have ended up on like the Citizen app and everybody would have laughed. The household itself, it's important to note, it was not an easy feat to run this by yourself. He had 14 people in 1763 noted. It was his wife, himself, his seven children, a hired maid, a hired waiter, several indentured servants, and at least two enslaved men were noted to be part of this household. This was a highly functioning business. This is so, so hard to do. Uh, so it's worth mentioning that it does take a village to run a business. So 1765, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. He ends up leasing the sign of the Queen Charlotte to John Jones, who renames it the Freemasons Arms, which makes my life very confusing. He moves to Philadelphia with his family and opens up another tavern by the name of Queen Charlotte on Water Street, which also makes my life very confusing when I have to do research. And then on top of that, he leases land from Trinity Church to open up Vauxhall Gardens. So that is a minimum of three or four businesses within one year within two major cities of the United States. I do not know when this man had time to sleep. So let's talk about Vauxhall Gardens. This is by far my favorite Francis establishment. Uh, this was a pleasure garden located on Chambers and Warren Street. So if you look at the map on your right, you'll see it's by the waterfront, you're by the pond, you're a little bit out of New York City. So it's a little bit like a Westchester today kind of feel where you're not quite there, but you are. Um, the pleasure gardens were privately owned and offered an assortment of outdoor entertainment. So you're looking at things like fireworks shows, musical performances, theatrical performances, anything that you'd want, he would offer. And it was always outside. So you think of, you know, a nice summer day, you want to go see something. You go see a movie. They play them down all the time outside. It's kind of like that. The advertisement on the left, you can see the different kind of entertainments that Francis offered at Vauxhall Gardens. They were quite the crowd pleaser and he charged about four or five shillings for them depending on the show. The one on the left promotes one of the shows uh, that features Roman general Scipio, conqueror of Carthage, standing by a tent in a grove of trees which, figure, which feature very lifelike fruit surrounded by a group of his advisors. Again, these are large life-size wax figures. He's also made a cornucopia of fruit and he's also a business owner and he's managing all of these different things. And this is his passion project. Um, I 
have a sample of a wax figure for you later on, but I just, there's something about these wax figures that I'm so intrigued about. There's another show that I was able to find. So he did offer these quite a bit, a set of 70 miniature wax figures that represented the queen of Sheba offering King, uh, offering gifts to King Solomon. I just can't imagine what those look like. They're wonderful. Hey. Uh, so Francis owned and managed Vauxhall Gardens on and off until about 1773. So by 72-73, as a tavern keeper, as the owner of Vauxhall Gardens, uh, as a New Yorker, he's understanding that the tensions are building, that he knows something is going on. He's hearing the news from Philadelphia. He's hearing the news from Boston. He sees what's going on in his own backyard. He knows that tensions are very high between the colonists and the British Parliament. The army is coming. So many different things happening. And he tries to sell all of his businesses in New York City to fully kind of settle, I think, in Philadelphia or leave. Uh, he's unsuccessful because nobody's buying anything at this point in time because they also know that war or a fight or British military occupation of some sort is happening for him as well. So going into the 1770s. Uh, New York City is a hotspot for debate and discourse, and it's no surprise that these conversations were happening in taverns at the time. There's a lot of action going on in the city, specifically on August 23rd, 1775, John Lamb and his artillery company attempt to steal a bunch of cannons from the battery. Uh, it doesn't go so well for them. The HMS Asia, a British warship, sees them and then literally starts firing at them. Uh, they are firing into the city from midnight until 3 a.m., and one of those cannonballs ends up going through the roof of Francis Tavern. Uh, so there's always danger. There's literally danger, not even in his backyard, but in his house. Uh, as a tavern keeper, it makes sense for Francis to have leaned to more patriot sides. Uh, uh, under the Stamp Act, he's taxed for things like newspapers, for broadsides, for playing cards. Even the paper that his tavern license is being printed on is being taxed as well. Under the Townsend Acts, his metals and glassware are being taxed and you can't have a tavern and you can't serve people ale if you can't afford a cup to put it in, right? Um, he's allowing groups like the Sons of Liberty to meet there. He's allowing his tavern to be the headquarters for the New York Provincial Congress. The Committee of 51 is noted to have met there as well. And because he's such a good secretive uh, person, I genuinely think that there may have been a lot more secretive meetings there may have been a lot more secretive meetings between these groups that were meeting at the tavern that we do not know about and will never know about because nobody, thankfully, wrote down any of these instances. In 1776, Francis finally gets to leave New York City. He finally finds his way out and he goes to live with his in-laws in Elizabethtown, New Jersey. It doesn't last very long. In 1778, he's actually captured and brought back to New York City to cook for General James Robertson. Uh, so being the best chef in New York City has actually hurt his, uh, his reputation. Uh, but he makes the best out of a bad situation, right? So he's serving these generals food. He's serving these high-ranking generals, all of this, this these, these very fancy dinner, dinner parties. Uh, so he gets him drunk, right? And he overhears all of this information. He hears troop movements. He hears supply movements. And it's unclear how, but he's able to get this information out and this intelligence, intelligence out to the Continental Army. He also claims that he aided American prisoners by sneaking them extra food, extra clothes, and extra money. And there's even instances about him helping some of them escape. So all of these claims can be found in his memorial to Congress that he does after the Revolutionary War. This is an oath that he takes that all of his efforts are true and factual. 
This is the only firsthand account that we have of Francis talking about himself of the things that he did. There's an instance in his memorial to Congress that he insinuates that he helped stop a plot against George Washington that we today know is the Hickey plot. Uh, that is another lecture for another day. I have many things that I have yet to look at for that one. Uh, but what you're looking at here is the Board of Treasury from 1786. He's actually awarded 2,000 pounds for his services. Whatever he said to that Congress that day under oath, they believed and they thought that he definitely deserved all of that money. So coming out of the Revolutionary War, so we've talked about 1786, right? He gets 2,000 pounds for his services. Um, he writes to Washington a few times, and he says that he's suffering financially, and he's describing himself as on the precipice of beggary. So this is really a lot like a lot of New Yorkers who are coming back into a post-occupied British military hub. 1785, he requests additional funds from Congress, right? He says the $2,000 wasn't enough and that I need more money. They tell him no, right? The Continental Army is a little broke at the time. The country does not have that much money and they have to pay other soldiers for their services as well. Uh, they end up negotiating a lease to occupy the upper floors of 54 Pearl Street for some of the first government offices. Francis at the time also starts writing to Washington and he's requesting Washington to help him acquire it's 550 pounds from the Charles Lee estate. He says that he's owed this money and he deserves to have it. He tells Washington that he had to leave his house in New York City. He had to sell his home. He can't pay back his debts. He's, he has debtors constantly asking for their money back. This is a very serious situation. Uh, after, it's like, it's not that long after he negotiates the lease, he ends up finally being able to sell 54 Pearl Street. Uh, and in a turn of events, he decides that he wants to take his hand at farming. This man has no farming experience, not that I can see. He has never been to a farm other than the like, couple of months that he was at his in-law's house, and I don't even think that he was doing stuff as well. Um, it doesn't last very long. So by 1788, he has returned to New York City and has opened up another tavern on 16 Nassau Street. In 1789, he has now opened up another tavern on 49 Portland Street. And then later that year, he opens up another tavern on Broad Street. Uh, so by the middle of seven, by the beginning of 1789, excuse me, he has uh, become aware that he will be part of the first presidential household in 1789 when Washington comes to New York City as the capital. Uh, he leaves management to his wife. And that is noted in several newspaper articles and several newspaper advertisements, excuse me, that Elizabeth is going to be taking over management and the advertisements for that are like, don't worry, she knows what she's doing. It's still in the utmost management. She's going to take the utmost care and we're still going to offer all of this amazing food. And it's really incredible to see the fact that he gives up publicly all of this power to his wife, women who were historically not really allowed to have that many rights and that much power. She's now leading some of the most famous restaurants. I mean, people are coming to San Francisco's taverns to, to eat his food and she's now managing it. So it is very important to mention that. I think that's wonderful. I've included some advertisements from those two, ta from those, uh, two taverns. I think it's safe to say that Francis uh, feels more uh, comfortable among the people cooking for them than actually having to produce the food for it. Uh, very weird turn of events. Uh, I, I think he was in Monmouth County. Um, I have one weird citation that I'm still trying to 
look at, but again, very mysterious, takes a lot of time. Uh, so if anybody is in Monmouth County, New Jersey, at any kind of historical society and has ever seen Francis, 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 uh, please email me. I'm working on a very tiny hunch. Uh, one of the most interesting documents in addition to the memorial to Congress is the 1790 census. This is the first one conducted by our new federal government. And as a research historian, census data is always, I mean, amazing because you get to see the demographic of how cities were broken down, what people looked like during this time, what households looked like during this time and how they kind of organized themselves. Um, the census can be found on the left side of your screen. Francis lists himself as a free white male and the head of the household in the dock ward of Manhattan. This household includes four free white women, most likely his wife and daughters, and the household also notes one enslaved person. So he has definitely sold one of his enslaved men but since uh, 1765, let's call it 67, the latest, and he still has one inside of his household. The image on the right is a 1793 Philadelphia census report. It doesn't include any additional information, but we know that Francis was serving as Washington's presidential steward in Philadelphia at the time, so that should be him. Again, notice that even by 1793, his name is still Francis. So you see it change when he wants to change it. Uh, so welcome to researching Samuel Francis. I want to address uh, the nickname of Black Sam during the census report. So the conversation around Francis's race has always been something that I do try to address and research myself. He is noted as Black Sam over the course of his life. Uh, Washington even refers to him as Black Sam in several correspondences to, to Samuel himself and to other uh, revolutionary patriots that you guys might know. There's also a poem from 1776 by, uh, by Philip Frenneau referencing him as Black Sam. Uh, he's referenced sometimes as light, as passing, mixed, mulatto, um, kind of a bunch of different things. The short and the long answer is, is that I do not know. Uh, I've divided my research of Samuel Francis into a bunch of different pillars. This research that you're seeing here is just kind of an overview of what I've been able to find initially. Um, I've been able to answer some of my own questions, but it has opened up a, a whole other page of new questions that I have for myself. And I hope that you guys are asking me the same exact questions to let me know that my research is on the right track. Um, I believe in a shared authority approach, the publications and the articles that refer to Samuel Francis as a black man should not be ignored. They should be looked at, they should be understood. They should understand where that writer is coming from with that narrative uh, and nothing should ever kind of be ruled out and the possibility should always kind of be there. He went to the grave, he didn't tell anybody. So I am not at liberty to make that assumption for anybody. So Samuel Francis and George Washington. These two had a very interesting relationship. So Samuel Francis most likely met General Washington in the summer of 1776. There is a note in Washington's papers from April 4th through the 13th, it's like a week block. And it says, dinner at Sam's. It's gotta be Samuel Francis, right? Uh, Francis also opens up his tavern at the time to the Provincial Congress of New York. So they were holding meetings in there that we know Washington was also a part of. Um, 
We know that he had court martial meetings in the tavern as well that Francis opened his doors up to. So they were definitely running into each other for that entire summer. They both had a very seemingly professional relationship. They both respected each other. You can see on the screen here, uh, receipt from when Washington came to eat at Francis Tavern. Uh, it's likely that he also requested takeout from the tavern as well because he was in his office over on the Bowling Green Park. So he was definitely within a reasonable distance. Although I have a feeling even if he wasn't, Francis still would have found a way to deliver food to him. Washington writes about Francis several times. He notes him as a warm friend saying that the man had invariably maintained a constant friendship and attention to the cause of our country and its independence and freedom. Uh, the tavern is most famous because of its connection to George Washington, right? We are most famous for being the ending stop on the evacuation day parade that happened in 1783, right? They end the war, they parade into New York City and then there's this giant party at Francis Tavern we're talking of 100, 200 people. There's fireworks going off. This is truly the end of the war. These men are celebrating the fact that they lived through the war, that they succeeded through the war. I mean, this is like a very big kind of frat party situation. And then about a week later, Washington comes back. He is having a very intimate meeting with the few remaining members of the Continental Army that are still in New York City. Remember, they've been disbanded after this, right? Their last hurrah really was evacuation day. He says this very final brief goodbye. Um, it's this very intimate moment. It's only been written down by one person by the name of Benjamin Talmadge. His memoir is on display in our McEntee Gallery. Uh, some of you may know that name from Turn, AMC's uh, Turn Washington Spies that follow the culprit firing. Um, so it's a shame that also did not make it into the show. I'm very disgruntled about that constantly. So on your screen, again, you can see a receipt from George Washington eating at Francis Tavern. There are several of them. If They have been uploaded to the Library of Congress if anybody is interested in seeing them. They're quite a bar tab. And then on the right, we have that full complete quote about Samuel Francis from George Washington. Um, it's interesting to see truly how many founding fathers and people that we know as touchstones to the Revolutionary War that were within the Francis kind of sphere, how many people he interacted with, how many people he fed, how many people he knew or wrote to, and how unknown Samuel Francis is in this kind of thing, right? He's kind of like that six degrees of Kevin Bacon, where he is that like sixth degree, where you know about him, you know that he was there, but you don't think about him first. So it's interesting to see I mean John Adams writes about his food in a very like passive way, which I always think is very funny, but it's he was there. So, I mean, to talk to him would be wonderful, I guess. Okay, so wax figures. We're back to the wax figures. Bear with me for a second. We have paper trails. We have letters. We have advertisements. We have documents. But we have one strange touchstone, and that is the wax tableau that was made for Martha Washington by Samuel Francis after the farewell. Uh, I have attached one of the photos of it, and I've attached the letter that came with the wax tableau when it was presented to her. Uh, this is made of flowers and shells and depicts the parting of the Greek mythological characters of Hector and Andromache. Andromache was known as the epitome of the loyal wife, so it makes sense for, for Francis to have made Martha Washington in that likeness, right? She really truly was the most of the loyal wives because dealing with Washington, it's not, it can't be a walk in the park. It is believed that Martha Washington placed this tableau on her bedroom uh, kind of shelf 
that she shared with George Washington. So we know that it definitely was at Mount Vernon at some point in time. Uh, today, it is at the Tudor Place Historic House and Garden Collection in Washington, DC. Um, it is newly restored. I know they went in uh, and were able to fix the sealants on it, but I, I need to see this piece in person. Uh, I was emailing Tudor Place for photos and stuff. And I was like, this is, I mean, it's amazing. That's all I'm gonna say. I hope everybody's also enjoying these photos. <laughs> so finally, in 1789 on April 30th, Washington is sworn in as the first president of the United States of America. But preparations for his household start happening months in advance. Uh, Washington hires Francis because of his culinary skills, right? He knows that Francis can cook. He knows that he can do it for a large group of people. He hires Francis to be the household steward responsible for overseeing the operation of the house and staff of 12, uh, selecting food for Washington's table and supervising its preparation. Um, this is a big responsibility. When uh, I speak to school children, when they used to come into the museum, I would talk about what it means to be a president because today all of us in this, this Zoom meeting, all 201 of us, they can see a number, understand and have a concept in our heads as to what it means to be a president, right? And it may be different for everybody, but we still have an idea. Imagine not knowing what that means, right? We've made up a whole new role in our government and we're all kind of going, well, what does that mean? So Washington has this stress on him to be presidential and we don't know what that means, but think about everybody that was part of his household. So Francis is now dealing with these dinner parties and he's dealing with these heads of state. He's dealing with people, foreign diplomats that are coming in, important people that Washington needs to impress. That's a lot of pressure for somebody who you think just cooks his food. It's about food preparation. It's about food presentation. How do we give that to them? What ingredients do we use? Do we solely use things that are from the United States? Do we get imported spices? Where do we get imported spices from? How much do we use? Are we going to offend somebody if we don't do this? There's a lot of thought that has to go into running this household. It's quite a lot of large, it's quite a large amount of pressure. And I can't imagine, uh, I mean, I'm not the best chef in the world, so I can't imagine putting together a giant dinner party for anybody to begin with. Uh, I can barely handle Easter as is, but uh, he does pretty good. Uh, we know that the two squabble for a little bit in February of 1790. So kind of into this first phase of their working relationship, the two men disagreed over the serving of wine at the servants table. Washington maintained a tight budget in the early years of the presidency to avoid that kind of very royal image. And Francis was all about the expensive wine and the expensive ingredients and using the best that he could, because remember, he's by the great dock. Think about when we were talking about Queen's Head Tavern, he wanted to use everything that he could and spend all of the money that he could. Uh, no grudges were held. We know that when the capital moved from New York to Philadelphia, Francis went with the Washingtons. He maintained that position until 1794. Uh, I found this wonderful quote from George Washington Park Custis about Francis that I have to share. He says, the steward was a man of talent and considerable taste in the line of his profession but was at the same time ambitious, fond of display and regardless of expense. This produced continued difficulties between the president and certainly one of the most devoutly attached to him and all of his household. Uh, that basically sums up what I was trying to say for about five minutes, uh, but wonderful quote. So we have these correspondences of people interacting with Francis, but never from Francis. So in 1794, Francis steps down as Washington steward and remained in Philadelphia with his family. And he opens up 
you guessed it, another tavern. Uh, the following year, he takes over managing the Tun Tavern. And shortly after, on October 12, 1795, he dies at the estimated age of 72. He's interned at Philadelphia St. Peter's Church Burying Ground, which you can see here in the center. I went to go pay my respects back in 2016 because I wanted to see the man that I was talking about all of these years at work. The image on the right gives you a good insight as to how business-oriented Francis was, who was basically working until the day that he died. It is a rare, extensive inventory list of items up for auction that would have been from his house uh, or the Tun Tavern. It's unclear, but this is a lot of stuff for one person. And then on the left, you can see the obituary notice. One of many, he had the same notice in newspapers through the colonies. So we're talking, there was a few in several different publications in New York City and in Philadelphia at the time. So his death uh, got a lot of attention and a lot of people were notified about it. 54 Pearl Street, the sign of the Queen's Head Tavern still stands as one of the oldest structures in New York City. The building has lived many lives and I often refer to her as one of the oldest residents in our city. It was saved because of its connection to Francis, to the Revolutionary War and to George Washington. So thank you everyone who lasted with me during this crash course on one of my favorite people and I'm excited to answer your questions. I'm gonna stop sharing my screen as well. All right. Thank you so much, Mary. That was fun. Uh, we have a lot of questions coming in. Um, thank you to everybody who submitted theirs. I was I'm going to start off. Come in, so I'm yes, very excited. Yes. I'm very excited. They've been coming in at a good clip. Um, <laughs> just to kick us off, though, can you tell me what is the most interesting piece of information you found along your research journey and more about what your next steps are with this project? Ooh, uh, one of the interesting ones, I think was definitely um, back at the Mason's Arms Tavern where it indicates that he was going to be this like lost and found for stolen buckles because it just really gives you a good indication of like the role of tavern keepers, because we can say it in concept, but when you see somebody actively put money into a newspaper for an art, for an advertisement for this, to say, right. I want my buckles back, you're going to leave it at this specific place under this specific time, trusted with Samuel Francis, yeah. is another indication of just how important this man was in the community. Right, and, and that everybody steps. would know that they're going to. Yeah, it's a very public notice. Yes. Yeah, it's like we didn't trust police officers, we trusted the tavern keeper kind of a situation. Next steps are ugh, um, where uh, there's so many different holes, honestly, to this man's life. Um, looking into the concept of Black Sam, looking as to who referenced him like that, when did they live, when did that reference come up, where he's been mentioned, um, looking more into his memorial of Congress, so a little bit more into the hickey plot, I guess. Um, why he decided to go into farming is my bigger question because that seems like such a left field for this man who loved to be around people who loved to be this not necessarily a center of attention but like to be part of it right he's not an introvert so for him to leave i wonder if he was just so desperate to get out of new york city to make money for his family that he decided to take up farming but again you're not skilled as a farmer there's too many 
it's a lot. You've seen my frustration at work when I go, why did he do this? <laughs> um, actually, to piggyback off of that, one of my questions is why was Francis struggling financially after the war? I think we speak a lot about the country at, at large, but mm -hmm. Francis has sort of a, I'd say a middle class kind of figure. Why is he specifically struggling financially or how, that, how did that impact people? Um, so to run a tavern was very expensive and he had several different businesses between New York City and Philadelphia. You have people who are leaving cities at an active rate in the early 1770s because they know something is going to happen. Like he's trying to sell his properties. He also makes this very terrible property purchase. Um, he tries to buy this huge like manor for mm -hmm. two or 3000 pounds, um, and he doesn't have the money for it. Even his lawyer is writing to him in a correspondence going, you know, this was a bad mistake, right? Like you shouldn't have done this, right? Uh, so he has to pay back that. He has to kind of sell that land off. He has a mortgage with Trinity Church for Vauxhall Gardens. He has a large family to take care of. You can see that he sells one of his enslaved, uh, one of the enslaved men in his household. So he's trying to get back some of that money but again, also during the Revolutionary War, he's not working. He's under capture. So mm -hmm. any debts that he could possibly pay off and operate his tavern, he's not. He's literally just cooking for free for General Sitting Robert. elsewhere. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, so I'm going over to the chat, the Q&A box now. I've got a question from Howard. How do we know that Samuel Francis didn't have a French accent? Is that just because no one has ever brought it up? Is that something that people would bring up like in their correspondence? Um, that's a great question, Howard. How do we not know or how do we know? Uh, this is my best guess as a historian. Um, nobody ever said, I feel like if he was French, I mean, when people write about Lafayette, I think sometimes they reference his like French accent or when they talk about von Steuben and his like limited ability to speak English, that's usually referenced. I think if he was of French descent and he had like a strict French accent, you would have seen it a lot more in his cooking styles as well. I feel like that background would have definitely influenced himself as a tavern keeper, what he was selling, what he was making, how he presented himself. Um, and you would have seen it a lot more in citations because not he's not often referenced, right, as a Frenchman in many of the things that I've been able to read about him that are written from that time period and not mm -hmm. like 19th or 20th century recollections of him. All right, so I, I see we've got a lot of questions and comments Yay. about um, Sam Francis and his desserts. Ah. I think I have lost the question in the queue now. Oh, a question from Ken. Uh, are there any recipes that we have found from Francis Tavern? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish the answer to that was yes. Uh, you hear like how people don't recognize his like French accent. People always will speak about Francis's cooking culinary skills. That is like the one thing that they love to talk about from him. Um, we can do our best. Me and Lisa are currently working on kind of putting together some sort of colonial dinner party together. That will be next year. Don't anybody get too excited about that. Uh, that requires a lot of research of what might have been served in a tavern due to like culinary trends. Um, but we know that the amount of food that he was selling through the advertisements and the type of food that he was selling was not in your average like pub down the block. Mm -hmm. These were like high, the fact that he advertises the fact that he makes wedding cakes 
is like, he will like cater your entire party. Yes. It's amazing. Because and that's he's not you see all the time. The ingredients, like he's got sugar on hand yeah. and all Enough. this sort of like import ingredients. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know how much documentation we have of actual recipes at the time because we just I have haven't receipts. come across one. No, we ever. just have bills and receipts <laughs> of like what everybody drank or ate, but we don't know what that food was made out of. I mean, we can guess because there's enough cooking recipe books from that time period that were ingredients too, but that's why we have culinary historians. And then a question from Holly. How many taverns does he own at one time? I like that whole lecture was a flurry of tavern names, <laughs> but does he run a bunch simultaneously? Yeah. And it's really confusing. Um, <laughs> when he leases out the Queen's Head Tavern in New York City, he opens up another sign of the Queen Charlotte on Water Street. So we're located on Pearl Street in New York City right off of water street. So when I'm looking at these references, I'm like, Oh, why is he advertising Francis Tavern that we know today in New York city in a Philadelphia paper? This seems really weird. And I went, Oh, he moved, (laughs) he moves and he names it almost the same exact thing. And I think it's almost like a claim to do branding, right? Like how we think of chain restaurants today, where he has this consistency of this is always Sam Francis's place. This is always the Queen's Head Tavern. This is always going to be the same place. And I find that so interesting because he's very smart about his business opportunities. He makes some bad financial choices, but he's very smart about understanding that he has to just keep opening up businesses. He's very enterprising. Um, I have a question from Debbie. Debbie. Did women go to taverns as guests? Uh, Sometimes. Uh, Depends on the occasion. It depends on the tavern itself. Traditionally, they were very, what is considered unchristian-like. So there's gambling, there's smoking, there's drinking after hours. not a very ladylike place to attend, but there are instances where for private parties, women would have been allowed inside. Women were allowed to work in taverns as well as barkeeps, as servers or anything else like that. Um, but having Elizabeth Francis noted as taking over management for at least a tavern or two at the time, because I can't, I'm still trying to figure out when these taverns close because nobody tells you these things. But it's very important to note that with tavern, women tavern keepers did exist. They were not as rare as you think that they are. Um, they were often enterprises for widows or single women to try to make money. And they were rented out as spaces. Uh, but attending them, most women would probably not record that down. So historical best guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) all right these are great questions i'm very excited yeah i have a question about our beloved wax figures from susie green pond girl uh that i'm also curious about what is the size of the tableau that he gifts to martha washington Um, what What are the scale of these wax figures that we're talking about? So like Scipio and like full Roman court are Madame Tussauds life size. 
Mm-hmm. That is for sure. So he, the, him and the advisors and like the cornucopia fruit situation, he's made like 12 or at least 15 of them. That is a very large undertaking because where is he getting this wax from? How, how much money has he paid for this wax and why is he not using it for candles for his, his several bars? Um, so many follow-up questions to that. Uh, so Scipio and them, the mini uh, Queen of Sheba ones are probably the same size as the tableau that I showed you. So I mean, like chest height, I guess, like, like bigger, definitely bigger than a Barbie doll. Um, the exact measurements, if you go to Tudor Place's website, they have a wonderful blog post about it and it actually gives you the measurements. I don't remember it offhand, but they're definitely like GI Joe size because the GI Joes are bigger than the Barbie dolls. I should know this as a taller mom and I don't know. I apologize, but they're definitely like sizable pieces. Right. Toddler size. <laughs> Toddler size. <laughs> All right. I've seen some questions about whether or not Sam Francis had any descendants. Um, but in addition, Holly asks, are you or is the museum connected to his ancestors? If he had seven kids, how many of them survived and had families of their own? Okay, I'm going to do my best because I am not a genealogist. This is also part of my like other piece of information that I'm looking to do for this. Um, caveat, we're still tracking them down. Still tracking them down. Yes. I know through Francis Tavern Museum institutional files in like the 70s and 80s, um, collect collection curator managers here, directors here have tried to make contact with his ancestors. All of those seven children survived. They all lived. Um, I've been able to try kind of do the early tracings of their life. So I've been able to find baptismal forms. They were baptized in both New York City and in Philadelphia, depending on where they were living at the time. Um, they have very interesting lives. Uh, I've been able to find it's, I think it's like Andrew Francis, one of his eldest sons, he's able to negotiate after the memorial to Congress with polices for his son to work in the treasury department and Alexander Hamilton does not like him. Uh, so I was able to find that fun tidbit of information, but currently we do not have any connection to any Francis relatives. So if any of you are watching all 174 participants, I would love to reach out to you. Uh, I'd love to know more. I'd love to just have a Francis person instead of me trying to talk to his ghost at work every day. All right, we've got another question from Fred Thompson. Um, he says, at the Cincinnati Society Museum in DC, there's a colonial bar bill <gasps> and that includes charges for drinks and breakage. Was it common to bill for breakage in colonial times? Yeah. Very common. Uh, Samuel Francis, I know, even charged for candlesticks that were used. Uh, so, I, yeah, breakage. I mean, you break it, you buy it kind of a thing. It was definitely like a no shoes, no shirt, no service kind of a situation as well. So um, if you rented out one of the private dining spaces at the tavern at night, he would have charged you for all the candlesticks that you had gone through because they were expensive, which makes me think, like, where was he getting all of this wax to make these figures? All right. all right um i have my own question i'm being selfish uh you mentioned that sam francis worked until the day that he died 
Yeah. Uh, was this common at the time? Did many people retire? Was that a thing? Or did they need to continue working their whole lives? Uh, people always needed to continue to work their whole lives unless they were part of this elite status that had enough money to survive off of that. Um, he, I think more so than needing money to survive, genuinely loved working. I think that you see this in him coming back from his farm. You see this in him opening up several taverns. You see this um, going back to Washington. I can't even imagine the argument that they got into over wine and him being like, you know what? This is a great opportunity for me and opening up several taverns at the same time. And I think he genuinely just loved cooking that he was like, mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep doing this. Um, his last will and testament that I was able to find that I'm still transcribing um, is so interesting to read. It's not in his handwriting or anything else like that, but it's so interesting to read of like, I'm in sound mind. He seems like he's aware of it. He makes his son the estate like owner. And it's just so interesting to see how his life progresses, which makes me so curious about his early life. Like we know so much about the middle of it. Well, we know enough about the middle of it. I have about 15 other questions that I want to answer myself. Uh, but it's, it makes you wonder where he came from and why he never spoke about these things, right? Like where he never, there's no reference to his parents or anything else like that. There's no reference to when I grew up, this is how I learned how to cook. Like, where did he learn how to cook? Where did that constantly, like, where did that come from? I know people can naturally do it. You bunch of show-offs, but like, where did it come from? Was he taught? Did his mom teach him? Did his dad teach him? I don't know. Yeah. I think on that note, <laughs> we can end our Q&A by saying it's still a big mystery <laughs> giant question mark over my head constantly never know the answer to anything well you know we've got a few of the puzzle pieces fit into our jigsaw yeah if anybody watching at any given time even if this is like uploaded to YouTube and it's like three years after the fact please contact Francis Tavern Museum please contact me if you have any information, send it over. I'm very interested. I think next we are going to hear from Barry Smith, who is our beverage manager at the restaurant, Francis Tavern Museum restaurant downstairs from the, from the museum. He is the beverage manager. And I think he's here to talk a little bit about the Samuel Francis ale and whiskey, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? There um, is. Yeah, I just I can't on I can't start my camera. So um, which I, I think that's under your control. I will try to put that on. Hold on. I can also just talk. I've made you a co-host, so I think that's how this works. <laughs> cool. There we go. <laughs> there he is. Hey, everyone. How are you doing? Um, so, yeah, I'm here just to tell you a little bit about um, you know, Francis Tarburn today, I guess, and our ale, as well as our, our whiskey, which we've just launched, are in the process of launching. So the Samuel Francis Ale, we, we really wanted to collaborate with a New York uh, brewery. So we collaborated with Flagship um, out of Staten Island. They're actually going to be at the Tarburn tomorrow for a Samuel Francis Ale uh, event. Uh, I think it might be sold out. Um, so yeah, we wanted to collaborate with a, a local brewery, local craft brewery as much as possible. Um, the, tar the Samuel Francis Ale 
Um, we really wanted something to be approachable, uh, close enough to what would have been um, drank back then. Um, so it's, it's, it's an amber ale. Uh, it's made with uh, amber and caramel malts, um, and it's hopped uh, to bring some soft floral and, uh, and fruity notes. Uh, and it does really well for us. The, um, the Francis Tavern Whiskey is an exciting project we've been working on. Um, for that one, we, we, this is like kind of our first release of Francis Tavern Whiskey. So it's gonna be called the Soldier's Reserve. Uh, and the concept behind that, it's kind of based on, I don't know, this is backwards of course, uh, but there's a book called The Memoir of a Revolutionary Soldier, which I've always really loved. And I really wanted the idea of a whiskey that the soldier, the, the, the common soldier would have maybe had in his, in his pocket. Um, so it's, uh, it's a white whiskey, so kind of close enough to what we know now as, uh, as moonshine. Um, and uh, this whiskey, we're, we're collaborating with a distillery out on Long Island called uh, Better Man Distilling Company. Uh, and they've been really great. It's a, it's a corn whiskey, but uh, it's got a little bit of rye in there as well, which feels like it would be authentic. Um, and it has it so that that rye gives a little bit of spice. Uh, and you can, the way I kind of like to imagine it is it would have been, you know, uh, whiskey to warm uh, the soldier uh, on a cold night. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's where we are right now. This Francis Tavern Soldiers Reserve, it will be launching in the next few weeks. Uh, very excited about that. And uh, yeah, thanks again. And uh, great, great talk, Mary. Thanks, Barry. Uh, just, I've had the San Francis ale. It is wonderful on a summer's day. Uh, it goes, and I'm not an expert, but it goes with everything. Just trying to yeah. hype it up a little. Uh, so I'm excited about the whiskey. Yeah, thank you. What a fun product. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Barry, for joining us. Um, I think we are ready to wrap up our lecture for tonight. Um, if you have any other questions, please feel free to ask, uh, reach out to me. You can find my email address on the website as well. I think Allie also dropped it in the chat box as well. Um, we hope to see everybody participate in the rest of the week for Tavern Week. We have a bunch of great uh, events coming up, one including Barry tomorrow. Uh, we'll be talking about the San Francis Ale in person in front of the restaurant. So it's very historic, very fun. Uh, look out for stuff on social media. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been so exciting to be able to share all of this information with you. Um, speaking through this out loud has made me think of four other questions that I need to do. So again, if you have any information, please just email me, please, please help. <laughs> so thank you everybody, have a wonderful evening and we hope to see you again at one of our many, many virtual programs. Good night.